Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about all the money that has flowed into campaigns ahead of the August 2nd primary. In some cases, unprecedented amounts. Simon Schuster of MLive is going to talk about where it's coming from, the role that so-called dark money is playing, and how voters can determine who's really behind the ads and other campaign materials that are flooding airwaves and mailboxes. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've decided to join us. Turn on the TV these days, and what do you see? Ad after ad after ad for political candidates, or sometimes against political candidates, who are going to be on the August 2nd primary ballot here in Michigan. And if you go to your mailbox almost any day of the week, if you're like me, you're pulling literature out, flyers, brochures, all kinds of things about candidates and their issues. Elections are getting more costly. And these commercials and these flyers, these things in our mailboxes, this is where we see a lot of that money being spent. In Michigan, 2018 saw the most expensive election season ever. At least $324 million were spent on a variety of campaigns, according to the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. And nationally, that trend appears to be the same. From 1998 to 2018, midterm election spending grew by more than $4 billion, according to OpenSecrets.org. And, as I said, this year in Michigan does not seem to be any different. Governor Gretchen Whitmer raised more than $9 million in 2022 and has $15 million in the bank. This is as candidates like Representative Sri Thanadar, who's running for Congress, has spent millions on his own campaign, millions of his own money. The amount of money that is pouring into congressional and legislative races is absolutely staggering right now. And there are a lot of questions about where that money comes from what that money's buying, and how voters can determine where that money comes from and what that money is buying. There's nothing illegal about the idea of money fueling campaigns or elections. But transparency means voters can understand what role the money is playing. And I don't think I'm alone in saying I don't think we have the kind of transparency we might want in our campaigns and our elections. That is where we want to begin the conversation today. What does it mean to have so much money sloshing around in Michigan campaigns? What kind of candidates get excluded from the process in this system? And how does it change our politics? And how does it alter the very issues that people talk about when they decide to run for office? Simon Schuster is someone who knows the world of campaign spending in Michigan really well. He's the former director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network and is now an investigative reporter at MLive covering politics. In addition to tracking candidates and representatives, He's still very much following the money, particularly during this primary season. Simon Schuster, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Thank you so much for having me on, Stephen. So Michigan gubernatorial candidates had to just now file their campaign reports. Let's start there. What did we learn from those who are running at the very top of the ticket here in Michigan? Well, you know, I think that as myself and my colleagues are sort of profiling these gubernatorial candidates, we sort of characterize them and the lanes that they're trying to run in, the sort of candidates that they're trying to be and their pathways to victory. And I think that for myself and my colleagues, uh, these campaign finance reports were really sort of an affirmation because they underscore and illustrate what these sort of avenues are. When you look at necessarily, uh, for example, Tudor Dixon, who is a uh, most recently a conservative commentator from Norton Shores. Um, she's someone who's sort of tapping into conservative donor networks. Uh, when you look at her um, her filing, about half of her donors uh, have given, or about half of her money is from donors who are giving the maximum contribution of $7,150. Now, her campaign is also kind of uh, unconventional because it's something that is unique in sort of our post-Citizens United world. Uh, she's only raised about $1.6 million, which is not particularly impressive among this field, uh, but at the same time, uh, she has a super PAC that's supporting her. Can't coordinate with her campaign, but that has spent about uh, $2 million on uh, air running advertisements in her favor. She attended a policy forum that they were hosting where uh, they used, uh, they filmed her giving a speech and then filmed shots of her and her family on stage and then had a sit down interview with her. And this has sort of been the basis for the footage uh, that she's used or that has been used uh, by this group uh, in this campaign. Now, uh, on the other hand, this is sort of in contrast to Kevin Rinke, who's a wealthy businessman from Bloomfield Hills. He's committed $10 million of his own money uh, to this election. He's done not a lot of fundraising outside of that. And he's already spent about $5 million of that sum uh, on this race. And uh, he's, of course, attacking uh, Dixon on the air with a significant number of ads mm -hmm. uh, for that. Uh, and then if you look at, by contrast, also Garrett Soldano, this is someone who is firmly in the populist lane. And so he's actually not gained uh, much, you know, support from wealthy individuals donating at that maximum amount. Uh, he has uh, instead sort of activated what he calls his grassroots army and is getting a ton of small dollar donations and has raised about $2 million and has uh, actually applied and received public matching funds, which uh, aren't necessarily very frequently used. They weren't in the last election, but uh, he's utilizing them now to get about an extra $250,000. The other two candidates in this Republican primary, Ralph Rebrandt and uh, Ryan Kelly, have raised considerably less money. And so it's sort of brought a distinction between these first three and the other two. Yeah. And as I said in the open, Governor Whitmer has already raised more than $9 million this year, and she has $15 million uh, in the bank. And I, I think that's a that, along with what's going on on the Republican side, are a good place to start thinking about the context here. How much money is being spent compared to years or even decades past, and whether this is getting out of control. And, and by that, I guess, I mean, whether voters should be concerned about how much money is coming in, where it's coming from, and whether they are able to determine where that money comes from and what it's buying from people who would be public servants, people who want to be uh, in in government, uh, give us a sense of how big a deal all of this is. Right. So I think it's incredibly important because, as you said, you know, 2018 was the most expensive state level election, and then 2020 became the most expensive election in Michigan's history immediately after. And I'd say it's pretty reasonable to estimate that we're on track for another record spending election, uh, provided uh, we can make up that 150 or so million dollars that was spent in Michigan on the presidential election in 2020. Now, uh, I think this is, we're gearing up to see that happen again. Um, the Democratic Governors Association has already reserved $20 million. That's a fifth of the total cost of the election in 2018. So, you know, to see that amount of advertising on airways is really important um, and a really big sign of what's to come. But I think it's also important to note that we can only peel back the curtain 
on this level of spending so far. Um, a big, you know, as you noted, that there's a lot of campaign literature out there in people's mailboxes. I mean, that's from uh, organizations where we can't track the funding. Uh, we don't really know how much is actually being spent there. We don't know, you know, how many millions of dollars of mail is heading into people's mailboxes. And so, um, you know, it's difficult to know exactly what the full cost of the elections are, but we can only sort of get an estimate. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Simon Schuster. He is an investigative reporter who covers politics for MLive. He was previously the director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. And we're talking about campaign finance. We're talking about money in politics uh, right now with just six days to go before the August 2nd primary. I think uh, anywhere you live in uh, in the state of Michigan, and especially in southeast Michigan, you are being bombarded with campaign ads on television and radio, with literature in your mailbox about candidates. All of this is a representation of the money that comes into these campaigns and gets spent on behalf of candidates and their issues. And it is a, it's, it's a amount of money that has been growing over a significant period of time and to a scale that we haven't seen before. Uh, the races are extremely expensive uh, and lots of candidates are now just self-financing uh, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well, uh, what do you make of the amount of money that is going into Michigan's political campaigns? What do you make of people self-funding their campaigns to the tune of millions and millions of dollars? Uh, what do you think should be the limits on campaign financial contributions? What do you think should be the rules about saying where you get money, so much of the money that is swirling around in these campaigns and around them uh, is so-called dark money, money that we can't really trace the origin of. Is that okay? Or should we be doing more to make sure that voters know who's financing their candidates, who's paying to push certain issues before they cast their ballots? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313- 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Also want to hear from you if you think uh, this is the way it should work, if you feel like you're getting more information than you ordinarily would from all the ads that are on TV and all the literature and stuff that's uh, in your mailbox. Uh, do you think that the equation of speech, political speech, and money uh, is is true, is something that makes sense, that uh, we need to allow candidates to raise money to get their message out to tell voters what they stand for and what they do if they were elected. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to social media, to Twitter. And put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we go to our listeners, um, Simon, I want to talk about dark money and how much uh, it is playing a role in this particular cycle um, and what the rules look like and what they could look like for making sure that there is transparency, that, that, that people are able to figure out who's behind the messages that we see and hear and read. Right. So, you know, I think I want to take you back in time a little bit here, Stephen, to a 1976 Supreme Court decision called Buckley v. Vallejo. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people discuss Citizens United in relation to dark money, but this one was particularly important because there's a, while this removed spending caps on our federal elections, uh, in a footnote of this decision, there was uh, one of the justices referred to eight magic words and that uh, you have, and essentially they were saying the government can regulate and force people to disclose money when these words are invoked, things like vote for, elect, support, cast your ballot for. And the, uh, the way in which dark money has entered our elections is primarily through advertising. It can't coordinate with or give directly to campaigns, but what they run is the so-called issue ads, 
by avoiding what uh, these eight magic words, what's known as express advocacy, they engage in issue advocacy. And the primary way that this gets into our elections is through nonprofit corporations, 501c4 social welfare organizations. These nonprofits don't have to disclose uh, their donors, and then they can spend unlimited amounts and take money from any source running advertisements that can say anything they want as long as they avoid express advocacy. So you'll notice a really good way to uh, spot dark money in our elections is when uh, you receive an ad that isn't telling you expressly to vote for somebody. And it is, we can trace necessarily, we can trace uh, the names of these organizations, but if they're not reporting to the Federal Election Commission, we really don't know how much money they're spending. And unfortunately, these nonprofits don't have to even report how much they spend until more than a year after the election. So that you know, the difficulty there is that uh, we really don't know the size of their footprint until the election's already long gone and people are already looking to the next cycle. Hmm. And so uh, that makes things especially difficult. And And we could change the way in which we make these expenditures transparent. There isn't anything that restrains government from requiring that, uh, that, we, that we know more about this. Is that right? Uh, yes, I would say to a certain extent. And I think the difficulty here of broad-based campaign finance reform is that the Supreme Court has taken a position on First Amendment that is exceptionally broad, especially uh, because they're very loath to do anything that would restrict what they consider to be anonymous political speech. That this, uh, that you know, capping spending, for example, or requiring the disclosure of this chills that speech. And uh, even a recent uh, Supreme Court decision from last year, Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta, essentially blocked the state of California from requiring nonprofits to disclose all their donors to the state because they felt that this would have a chilling effect on speech. So it, there's deep roots here, but there is certainly avenues where uh, the state or the federal government could require at least some more disclosure. So we could at least see the scope of spending and how our politicians may be benefiting from it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Simon Schuster of MLive about all the money sloshing around in campaigns in advance of next week's primary elections. We're going to get to you, the listeners, on the phones and on social media. Craig in Southfield, Max and Allen Park, Ed in Detroit. You're up first. You want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Six days left until the August 2nd primary here in Michigan. And we are talking with Simon Schuster of MLive about all the money that is flowing into campaigns and creating all these ads that you see on television and hear on the radio, the flyers and things that are crowding your mailbox. Uh, we're talking about what that money means. It is growing in politics and especially in local politics. Some of it, we can't actually see who is responsible for it, who's trying to influence our votes and our public officials. Um, should we be changing the way that we think about this? Uh, should there be limits on the way that uh, people are able to raise money, harsher limits? Uh, should there be more transparency that attends uh, the way that they collect and spend money on their own behalf. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation especially. Uh, give us a sense of what you make of the ads that you're seeing and hearing on the airwaves, the ads that you're seeing in your mailbox. Are they making you decide, are they helping you to decide who you're going to vote for next Tuesday? Uh, are they the way that you get information about campaigns and candidates? Or are you annoyed by all of this uh, information and you're suspect uh, of the people who are creating it and maybe the motives 
behind it. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put uh, comments there, or you can go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work into the conversation. Let's start today with Craig in Southfield. Hey, good morning. Hey, Craig. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Simon, um, thanks for being on. So I'll get right to the point. So there's this one ad in particular that keeps running, and it goes, technology is under attack. Tell your congressman to not vote for this. Who's behind that ad? Because <laughs> it gives no details as to what their purpose is. It's just vague general information, and it runs Constantly, at least nine times a day, that ad runs. Who's behind that ad? Craig, I I love that you called and asked about a a specific ad. I have not seen that one, I don't think. But I I like your question because it really highlights the, I think, the darkness that that voters often have to wander around in when they when they see these ads or hear them or or get them in their mailbox again. Who is behind these these uh, these messages, and how do you find out? I think is is one of the questions that occurs to everybody. All right, so Simon, can we help Craig out here? Have you seen this ad, and do you know who's responsible for it? So I haven't personally seen this ad, but I think that this really sort of points to one of the hallmarks of dark money, which is that this is not necessarily so much for voters. Uh, well, it can be, and it can ha- it can influence elections to an extent. Uh, I think what this really underscores is that when you look at these ads and you see these groups, um, you know, issue advocacy really is about uh, telling people to do something. It's not about telling people who to vote for. But you often will hear, tell this tell this congressman to vote, uh, you know, no on HB 2561. And the thing is... Uh, Congressional staff and campaigns are very aware of this ad spending, and they feel the pressure that is going on from these ads because it might cast them in in a negative light. The same way they might be rewarded because these ads are, you know, touting their positions on a bill that these individuals might care about. Now, there is a distinction here uh, because it might have an opaquely named group, but this might be a super PAC that's registered with the Federal Election Commission. And if it is, you can go on to fec.gov, look up the name of it, and look into its fund funders. So while super PACs are, you know, can spend unlimited amounts of money without coordinating with campaigns, they do have to disclose their donors. That said, those donors could exclusively be dark money organizations. And with a, you know, a randomly named organization that sounds very obscure, your trail may end there. Mm. But if it, uh, and it, but if it is just the dark money organization spending the money directly then you really don't have a lot of recourse. You might have to wait a year and then look up their nonprofit disclosure documents. And even there, you're not going to see who the donors are. And frequently, we see this kind of ad uh, sort of created around a candidate as opposed to an issue. I mean, you talked about ads that say, tell this this congressperson to to vote yes or no on this thing but this time of year what we see are ads that aren't for a particular candidate they're against another candidate and they're not coming from uh, the the you know the campaign of an opponent they come from again just it's it's unclear exactly uh, exactly who it is and it seems to me that that's uh, even more problematic because here you know here you're talking about essentially trying to influence uh, an, an election but but not really saying um, where that influence is coming from uh, and, and of course the, the the veracity in these ads is always quite questionable. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they are attack ads, and and by definition, I think then they take some liberty. But but some of them just you know really bend the truth quite quite a bit. And and I think that's the more common that's the more common ad that we see, and and it seems to me slightly more problematic. Yeah, I think that there's sort of two things here. One is that while these are you know uh, arguably 
bad for our democracy. It's great for campaigns because voters generally don't like seeing a candidate sort of get down and dirty and sort of say really negative and nasty things about their opponent. So they have these dark money organizations, super PACs and nonprofits that can really, you know, do that. They can sling mud and get nasty for them while they're allowed to uh, run a really positive campaign. I think the the other part here too is that uh, oftentimes you see PACs that are, as you said, not uh, you know that have a specific purpose, but aren't uh, you know speaking about what they care about at all because uh, they really just want an electoral outcome. That's really what's important to them, and it's not so much about uh, you know fighting for the issue. They want to change the outcome of the election. They don't want to necessarily speak too much about the single issue they care about because that is may not be what resonates best with voters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Craig, I really appreciate the call and I wish you some luck trying to go to some of the resources that Simon pointed out uh, to, to try to figure out where that ad comes from. I have not seen it and, and Simon has not seen it, but I can tell it's uh, it's getting on your nerves. Uh, I want to read a couple of social media comments. Uh, Susan on Twitter says, is it is too much the problem or is it the source, especially from a handful of of donors who are not disclosed. Uh, Anthony on Twitter says, Blue Cross, Blue Shield money figures really heavily into Michigan politics. Uh, That is absolutely true. And when you look through uh, campaign finance records, you do see uh, our largest insurer in in the state uh, in a lot of campaigns and on a lot of issues. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, this might come up later in discussion, but can the guests talk more about how long super PACs have been around and why they're used. Uh, Simon, we've been kind of brushing up against that, that issue during the conversation. Uh, what's, what's the answer to Michael's question? Right. So, uh, you know, independent expenditure committees, which is kind of what super PACs are, are not necessarily new to politics. Uh, Soft money advertising, which is that issue advocacy, is not something that's new to politics either. Uh, What sort of Citizens United changed is the sources that it can come from, that it can be from uh, corporate sources and they can spend enormous amounts of money. And you see sort of the echoes of this in our politics. In the most recent Supreme Court election in 2020, for example, uh, the candidates themselves, the two uh, Democratic Party nominated Democratic Party uh, nominated candidates who uh, ultimately didn't really spend too, too much of their own campaign dollars on this election. Instead, there was a super PAC, uh, Justice for All, which was uh, a um, a um, PAC that was sponsored by who uh, Michigan Justice Association, formerly the trial lawyers. And when you look at the campaign finance records of that organization, it's largely just law firms. And it's because these firms... Uh, can now spend money under Citizens United and the subsequent changes to Michigan law, that that was enabled to be possible. And so I think that while, you know, there's no longer caps on spending for some of these committees, it's not necessarily just corporations, but rather ultra wealthy individuals that have really benefited the most uh, from these changes. Again, Craig, uh, thanks very much for the call. Also some information for you, Craig, our engineer Matt says that ad is about American innovation and the Choice Online Act. Uh, He says Amazon is behind the ad and the law that they're talking about there concerns uh, antitrust. So uh, that's I think that's a pretty interesting uh, tidbit of information as well. Uh, Let's go back to the phones. Max in Allen Park. What's on your mind? Well, good morning, guys. Um, you know, having worked in politics for like a long time, and some people know that, some people don't, but I, I, I've seen how uh, money raising, fundraising is so time consuming for elected officials. I mean, like call time is a very commonly bantered around term, and it's about raising money. Uh, I wish we could be more like the British or like Canadians that have a parliamentary system where everything is publicly financed uh, because disclosure under our current system where there is no limit on money is not enough. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Max, I, I, I think that's a really important perspective to add to the conversation that in other countries, they do this differently. And I think we tend to believe that our version of the democratic system is, is you know, the best. Uh, we also tend to think that it's the model for everybody else's. But on this 
count in particular, it's not. Uh, there, are, there are huge differences in other countries uh, about the ways in which people are allowed to campaign, raise money, spend money, and things like that. Now, the big difference, I think, uh, is the First Amendment to our, our Constitution, which really does say that uh, political speech in particular is uh, is is free and cannot be abridged uh, in any way and uh, the, the the idea of of course uh, b- being free to petition for a redress of of grievances also is uh, one of the one of the five freedoms protected by the first amendment has a lot to do with with political activity and so uh, I, I think we tell ourselves that those things make us unable to change uh, the system in a way that that would be substantive or would make it look more like other countries. I'm not sure that I absolutely agree with it, but it certainly is the explanation that we're given Simon Schuster over and over again. Right. And, you know, I think that it's important to note that there's been a couple of efforts to sort of level the playing field here, not necessarily uh, stifle, you know, what the um, Supreme Court has deemed political speech, but sort of place smaller dollars donors on a more equal playing field. Because, you know, if spending, if this money in advertising is political speech, then a billionaire who donates a million dollars to a super PAC uh, has a lot more speech than, you know, uh, your average person who's maybe working on minimum wage, right? And so uh, New York City, for example, has tried to do a public matching funds program where uh, if you are, uh, if you give less than $250 to a candidate, uh, they can apply to have that matched. I believe it's either six or eight to one. And so that money uh, sort of has a much greater impact than it would otherwise. Uh, and similar in Seattle, every voter is given uh, democracy vouchers, which then they can hand to the candidate of their choice. Um, these are difficult programs to administer and at times costly, but it does sort of create a bit more, um, I guess you could say, equity uh, in our in these elections. But these are very new programs, and they haven't necessarily been refined yet. This is our, these are very much experiments. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Frank and Livonia, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Frank. Um, I remember we talked about uh, this when uh, Barbara McQuaid was on uh, some time ago, and mm. I'm thinking I'm going to start a political party that will uh, be the fundraising. So it'd be like a clearinghouse and it would be contractually bound to the candidates that are running under that uh, political party, uh, that they would be, uh, you know, that money would be dispersed per vote on an equal basis. And it would create a firewall from that direct contact between the, you know, the, the donors and the candidate. And uh, so, you know, the, you know, they, it, it wouldn't run into any, um, uh, you know, First Amendment things because, um, you know, this is a contract between two parties, you know, the party mm-hmm. itself and I guess the uh, the candidate. And I've run for office here in um, Livonia for state rep and for school board and city council and never was successful. And uh, it was kind of like a boutique operation, I guess <laughs> I would call it. And uh, but, you know, I really found out that you know what, if you're, if you want to be uh, a candidate, you must tow that party line. You can see that with Trump and the Republicans. And it's the same exact, because I ran as, as more of a Democrat then, uh, but it is the exact same, if, you know, thing in the Democrat party. Uh, you will not get any support at all from the Democrats if you don't tow the, you know, the different uh, union line and the pro-choice uh, uh, line and, you know all these different types of things, no matter how you feel about it. Hmm. Uh, Frank, that's uh, that's an interesting observation. I'm really glad you called and uh, and shared it. Uh, Simon, what's your reaction to what Frank's saying here? I think that you know, uh, while it's a sort of a, a noble aspiration, right? This sort of touches on one of the biggest difficulties uh, in the American system for folks who want to reform uh, how we do campaign finance. Is that when you look at our state house elections in the last uh, in 2020? the biggest source of dark money in these elections were the state parties themselves. Uh, they have, they spent, I think, uh, to combined about $5 million in, in a $40 million election out of dark money accounts, uh, so-called administrative accounts, uh, to boost their candidates. And uh, this is in large part because uh, even if you want to reform the campaign finance system, right, uh, the argument that's used over and over is that, well, you're not going to reform anything if you don't get elected. And so this sort of two-year election cycle, that churn of candidates Mm -hmm. uh, over and over, the fundraising does not stop. 
and they're not, and I don't think uh, any either party is interested in unilaterally disarming themselves when this money is so integral to their electoral uh, uh, hopes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's uh, quickly go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. Morning. Great show as usual, Steve. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, the reason I called, okay, we've got freedom of speech, and everybody's kind of used to getting, you know, political mail during this season, but... I've been getting campaign texts on my phone. Okay, this has never happened before. Hmm. And the thing is, you know, how much are they spending to get my phone number? <laughs> and from whom? I never gave them my number. It's, it's, it's a bit much, you know, and it's intrusive. So, and yeah, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go the, ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead and finish, Ed. No, it, 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 it's basically, you know, what avenue you already have, you know, TV and everything, the best way I think of putting your point across is to have a debate with all the candidates, what they stand for and what they want to do. Yeah. Um, Ed, I'm really glad you called. Uh, I, I have to say, I am getting those texts as well. And I have the same question that you do, which is, how did they get my number? I don't remember giving my number to anybody saying, hey, text me about your campaign. Often it's for candidates I haven't heard of in other states. It's about issues that uh, I can't vote on. Um, Simon, uh, fill us in on, on this part of uh, campaign spending and things like that and the, the idea that people should maybe be able to opt out of all the information that's out there. I think that this is a great point to touch on because um, with our political system becoming more and more professionalized, I mean, I think it's fair to say it's already very professionalized. Uh, data is king. All of the tools that are brought to bear on marketing, getting you to buy a product, are very much brought to bear now on political advertising. And uh, what happens is that micro-targeting is increasingly important. The idea is that the ads that you run through on your social media feed, uh, those political advertisements that you see on your Facebook news feed are as tailored to you as the ads for certain products that you can buy. Uh, I was speaking to a consultant just yesterday who was saying, I'm not going to be uh, targeting someone for an ad until I know you know, information like whether they own a home, how much their mortgage payment is, what professional associations they may belong to. So this data is really, really crucial for these campaigns because it enables them to spend money very efficiently and figure out what kind of messages they can use to best persuade voters. Even though, you know, a certain topic may be not a big part of someone's policy platform, not a big part of their agenda, you will see that featured centrally in an ad because they have data that illustrates this is something that I can use to push voters in my direction. Yeah. Okay, Simon Schuster, investigative reporter for MLive. It was really great to have you here to help us sort through all of the money that is flown into campaigns ahead of uh, the August 2nd primary next week. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Always a pleasure to talk campaign finance. We're going to take another quick break and we come back. We're going to have a little fun talking about changes in college football. The Big Ten expanding again. And for a while now, players have been able to make money off their names and likenesses. Are these changes making college football more exciting and better? Or are they ruining the sport for fans, we're going to talk with Sean Windsor, a columnist and sports feature writer at the Detroit Free Press, as well as Braylon Edwards, who played football just up the road at the University of Michigan. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Cards on the table before we have this conversation. I am a huge fan of 
the University of Michigan and its sports teams. I went to the University of Michigan. I marched in the Michigan marching band, and I continue to have strong ties to the university, sitting on a couple of boards and helping to teach some classes. So even though I've struggled with the controversies around college football in particular and college sports more generally, I still pay a lot of attention and I care really deeply about what happens. So I was paying a lot of attention when some major news dropped recently about the Big Ten. The conference announced that by 2024, UCLA and USC, two schools that have forever been part of the Pac-10, are going to join the 14 other teams in the Big Ten, creating a 16-team super conference. Now, this news comes along with the fact that college players can now get paid based on their name, image, and likeness, a change that just kind of chips away at the inequalities that attend playing college sports. All these players who make an incredible amount of money for the universities, but don't benefit from it. The question is, what does all this mean? How's it going to change the Big Ten? How's it going to change college sports? And is all of this making it a better experience for fans, or is it ruining things? I got to say, it's hard for me to think of UCLA and USC being part of the same conference as Michigan and Michigan State and Iowa and Ohio State. But maybe that's a step forward. Maybe that's a step toward more competitive teams. Maybe that's a step toward more parity. I don't know. Our next guest, though, have had some time to think about these questions and probably have a few answers for us. Sean Windsor is a columnist and sports feature writer at the Detroit Free Press and has paid lots of attention to the changes in college sports. Sean, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Good to be with you. And also with us is Braylon Edwards, a sports show host at the Woodward Sports Network. He was a wide receiver for the University of Michigan and then later for the Cleveland Browns and several other teams in the NFL. Braylon Edwards, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, how you doing? First of all, the name of the show is The Bottom Line. You can check us out to the floor, Twitter, Twitch, all those type of streaming platforms. But I got to say, you led off with you were in the marching band every Thursday night. Um, me, Marlon Jackson, Tim Massacoy, and a couple others, we would go down to L. Bell Field. Uh-huh. And we would watch you guys. We would got you guys practice, you know, <laughs> late night practices. I That's think right. it started around 6 and didn't end until like 11. <laughs> you guys, you That's right. You guys used to get at it. So I have to say, I have a lot of respect. And I love the Michigan Marching Band. Ah, so do I. It's one of it, it is the experience that I always dream about when I dream about college. I never dream that I'm working at the newspaper, which I also did. I'm always in the band uh, in those dreams. Uh, so, so I got in trouble, yeah. trouble one time because I snuck out of the locker room like right after, like right before Lloyd was speaking. And went down there because I used to watch the drum major do the infamous <laughs> lean down to the hat. Yep. And Lloyd and Lloyd knew that I used to sneak out to do it, so he caught me one time before we uh, halftime during Penn State my sophomore year. And uh, <laughs> let's, let, let's just say I, I had to get up every morning for three weeks at uh, five a.m. But it was worth it. It was worth it. That's right. That's right. All right. So Braylon, I'm going to start with you. What do you make? Of these changes, what do you make of the expansion of the Big Ten, and what do you make of this idea of paying players for their name and likeness? You played at the University of Michigan, a time when this wasn't possible. Are these good things for college football? Uh, I believe so, because at the end of the day, uh, adjustments are going to happen. Like evolution happens throughout life, especially you know in sport. Evolution happens each era, each decade. I mean, you look at the Big Twelve. Big Twelve used to be the Big Six. Then it was the Big Eight, but nobody remembers that because as adjustments happen, people forget and you move on and you adjust accordingly. I think it's good for the Big Ten. You know, we're and the four major media markets are New York. You know, we have Rutgers. You can kind of say that it's over there as well as Maryland. Kind of sort of our East Coast team. You think next is L.A. Now you add USC in there, UCLA. Who technically, when you think USC, you think Pac-10, Pac-12. 
you think about the Big Ten in some shape, fashion, or form, and vice versa, because we've been connected at the hip and the Rose Bowl mm-hmm. for a hundred plus years. So I mean, I, it's not like you're adding, you know, a Boise State. You're adding a team that brings tradition and history, the most Heisman trophies ever, and a ton of Michigan losses, <laughs> but a ton of Michigan games. But they're the second biggest media outlet. You know, then the next one is I want to say yeah, Chicago. We we own Chicago, so I think we're connecting at all the major media markets. This is the way in which college football is going. So I think we're getting ahead of the curve, and I don't think it's a bad thing because we'll be we won't be having this conversation in 15 years because nobody remembers that it was the Big Ten, which was the Big 11, really, when I played, because we had a Penn State, nobody right. talked about that. And now it's, you know, it's going to be the Big 18 or Big 16. So I think it's the way of the future, and I think change always happens. And you know, once you get past, people forget. Nobody remembers the BCS. So that's true. Happens in college football. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean, uh, talk about why all this is happening and how old fans like me uh, can adjust to to all these new these new configurations and and all of these these new dynamics in college football. Well, I'm with Braylon. I I, don't, I think it's I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just it's just change, and this is what I tell people because I'm kind of in the minority, at least. In, among uh, a lot of folks who cover college football and write about college football and, you know, have opinions about college football. But think of, I'd boil it down to this. Think about the game day experience, right? Is that is that going to change? Because I, I don't think it is. I don't think tailgating is going to mm-hmm. change. I don't think the way the players run into Michigan Stadium is going to change. The, color, the school colors are not going to change. The band's not going to change. By the way, I don't love Michigan's marching band because they. I used to play uh, basketball on that little concrete part of Elbel <laughs> back in the late '80s. Oh, too loud <laughs> in early '90s, and y'all y'all took over and, and kicked <laughs> off one of the best little hoop spots in uh, in Ann Arbor. Yeah, no, that that's right. We used to have hoops on that in that field, and then they 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 actually made it a field. It's it's like a no, I know that's. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the university's taking over <laughs> that. That's a different. That's a different story. But the, <laughs> But no, to me, it boils down to: Is the game day experience going to change? Right? I mean, and I think that is if with with expansion, um, and maybe there are more conference games, and and maybe Bradley can speak to this too. But Michigan's about to play Hawaii and Connecticut. And I can't mm-hmm. remember their other non-conference game, right? And fans have been yeah, complaining Colorado's about that for years. Yeah, fans have been complaining about that for years. The ticket prices keep going up. You know, look, it, college football and basketball have run like uh, businesses for a long, long, long time. Yeah. You know, right? Decades, decades and decades and decades. And we've liked to pretend that it's not. And to me, these moves just force us to deal with what college sports are, are about, right? Yeah. yeah. And and I and I and I don't think that's a I don't think that's a bad thing. We we can't keep pretending this is an amateur game. It's not. And yeah. I think NIL is great. I would like to see players get played. To be honest. With you. Yeah. So, I know so, that's trickier with Tyler yeah. and so forth, but I mean, just straight up paid to me. It's, it's, I mean, there are a lot of people who a lot of people who feel that way. Uh, Braylon, I'm I'm really curious about your take on that because, like I said, you played college football at a time when there wasn't any compensation. Uh, what do you think of this idea? It. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, kind of expanding a little bit to the uh, the last conversation, uh, but piggybacking on Sean is. Just imagine having season tickets or just imagine being a fan like you are, like we are in Michigan or whatever school you're a fan of, uh, and you look at your schedule. And the schedule you look at says, you know, you open up against, let's just say, a Notre Dame, and then maybe you play a, a Miami, Ohio. Then your next game is Iowa see, And then you see Penn State. And then you see UCLA. Now, this is the perfect schedule, but I'm just – like, if I look at that schedule – I'm saying, you know what? Finally, Michigan didn't rip me off on season tickets. You know what? I'll gladly pay whatever the hell the fee is for that season ticket to see all those amazing games. So that's nothing. And then you're adding two teams that uh, UCLA is kind of like the Michigan of the West in terms of, you know, campus, in terms of academics, in terms of the full spectrum of sports. So I think you're adding two teams that add value in a major way. But the NIL, look, NCAA had this coming. They use athletes for years among the, the amateurism laws that Spencer Haywood challenged that they played. They destroyed the life of Maurice Claret and Mike Williams. Like they've done this for 
years capitalizing, capitalizing, and being greedy. Like, I just remember the international championship basketball game that when UConn won 2016 mm-hmm. or 15, as soon as they interviewed Shabazz Napier at the end of the game, you're talking about a guy who just won a national championship. Up until that point, that's probably been his dream, his goal as a young man. His, his teammates are excited. They're excited. Do you remember the conversation, the first thing he said when he got on the microphone? He talked about not having money to get food, mm-hmm. not having money for gas, not having money for, for rent. He talked about the impoverished situations of college athletes. We say UConn in stores. And that stuck with me. So the NCAA has had this coming for a very, very long time. Now, I don't, I don't know if we thought it would be like this, kind of like the Wild Wild West, but the NCAA put themselves in a situation for this to happen. I think it will level off at some point, and there will be some structure. But right now, these young men deserve to reap the benefits mm. of the guys that came before them, the, the Mees of the world, the Archie Griffins of the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The NCAA did this to themselves, and the guys are basically reaping the benefits for all the guys that came before. So yeah. I have no problem with so, it. So, Brandon, I've only got about thirty seconds left. You, you support the idea of just paying players too? That that this name and likeness support, is just the beginning. Yeah, go ahead. I support a structure, and you know, Jim Harbaugh, although he lost recruits for saying it, he talked about being transformational, non-transactional. I believe in paying for his service. I believe, hey, if I do a service with you know, Ford, Ford is going to pay for my name and his likeness, and I have to do something for that stats or go in the community or do something. I don't believe in just, all right, cool, I'm Arch Manning, you know, pay me a million dollars to come to your school. I don't believe in that. I believe in paying for a service versus just transactional. So I believe mm-hmm. in paying players, but I believe players deserve to get paid once they've done something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Braylon Edwards and Sean Windsor, great to have both of you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for stopping by. Good to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the Republican candidates for governor as well as how the primaries are taking shape here in Wayne County. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.